Our good friends at Johnny O welcome you to this episode. And if you've listened to Rich Take on Sports, then you know two things are important. Sharing the impact of sports in people's lives and the Johnny O clothing brand, blending those East Coast classic styles with a SoCal vibe. I've been wearing Johnny O for several years, and now you can as well with 20% off your first order by using the promo code ARICHTAKE at johnny-o.com. Live your best life with the Johnny O style and use promo code ARICHTAKE at johnny-o.com for 20% off your first order. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 156. Thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Throughout her life, Andrea Adelson has understood that strength is power, being in a male-dominated industry, but there's also the power of goals. From the first time she told her dad that she wanted to be a sports writer, to now evolving her career to be much more than just a sports writer. Growing up in South Florida, she would attend the University of Florida before various stops, where now you can find her as a senior writer for ESPN where she also appears regularly on Packer and Durham, focusing on the ACC. But you also might even see her on the Paul Feinbaum Show, talking SEC sports as well. Our conversation with Andrea Adelson. Andrea, thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it, and, and especially your patience as there's always technology gremlins that <laughs> pop up for whatever reason. Uh, and I know you've probably been used to that just over the past two years now that we've had to obviously connect in so many different ways. Uh, but one of the first questions I have, though, this morning as we're connecting, did you get a run in? I know you're always running. So <laughs> did you get one in this morning? I actually did in the wonderful Florida heat and humidity. It was 8.15 in the morning. I should have gone at 6.15 uh, and I was struggling. I came back in. It looked like I had just want, gone through a fire hose. I was that wet, but uh, <laughs> it felt good to be out there. Uh, I can't even imagine running in Florida and, uh, you know, here in Greenville, South Carolina, I mean, it's humid, but it's nothing like Florida. And I know, I mean, you're from Dade County, so this is nothing, you know, uncommon for you. But it isn't just, it sucks the life out of you at times, just the humidity. I don't, I don't know how you deal with that on a daily basis. Air conditioning is my best friend. <laughs> really, the only time I go outside is for a run. And I'm not a morning person, really. I don't like waking up at 5 a.m. to be able to beat the heat. So I pay for it when I go out at 8 a.m., And it's 100% humidity and it's already 80 degrees outside. But you know what? Working up a good sweat, it kind of makes you feel alive a little bit, even though it sounds strange, uh, because you feel like you've accomplished something. And for me, it's not just about the physical health, but it's also about mental health. And that's why no matter how hot it is, I, I love having that 20 to 30 minutes where I can just be in my own head and think about the day ahead or what I've got to get accomplished or what's happened over the weekend. So it was great to go back out there. I I hadn't gone out for about three days, so it felt good, even though it was totally miserable. And are you a podcast listener, music listener, or just you listen to the sounds as you're running? No headphones. So I used to be a podcast listener before the pandemic. I love uh, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. He is one of my all-time favorite podcasts and The Office Ladies, uh, because I love The Office. So those were always my go-tos. But Since the pandemic started, we actually got a Peloton membership. I don't have the bike, but it has a lot of in-home workouts and outdoor runs, uh, which I never thought I wanted the coaching before because I just like to be in my own headspace. But the coaching actually has helped me progress with my times and also my endurance. So I really enjoyed those. So now I listen to 
outdoor runs from Peloton. I've got an instructor in my ear uh, and there's great music and I don't have to really worry about anything except running faster when they tell me to run faster. <laughs> yeah. Now, and do you listen to them? Because that's the thing, because I, I enjoy that as well, because I've got a Peloton membership, but I loved the outdoor run aspect of it. And I didn't think I would like that as well. And I would have to say it did help me. Yeah, it, I'm a, not a very fast runner. Again, a lot of it is more for my mental health and not looking at what my times are going to be. Uh, and it's so funny because I was watching the Olympics with my two girls uh, and they're run, watching the track and they're like, mommy, could you beat them? I'm like, absolutely <laughs> not. I don't think you understand how fast these people, this is a dead on sprint for miles and miles. So no, yeah, I'm more of like a 945 minute mile runner um, and I'm fine with that. Now, have you always been a runner? Uh, like even going back to growing up, is that something that you've always enjoyed? No, not at all. I had asthma as a young child, and so it was very hard for me to run at all because I would lose my breath really quickly. Uh, and so I really didn't play a lot of sports. I played softball a little bit because you didn't need necessarily that type of running endurance uh, to be able to play. I was an outfielder on my uh, junior high school team. And then once I got into high school, I was really focused on sports journalism and what I wanted to do with my life. And so I didn't really play any sports in high school. It wasn't until I moved to New York City uh, I started to run because I lived close to Central Park and they have not only a, a six mile loop around Central Park, a little bit more than six miles, they've also got a reservoir, which is a shorter loop around a lake inside Central Park. And so I just figured I need to do something. I need to do something for my exercise, again, for my physical and mental well-being. So I started running there and I really started to love it because it was just this incredible feeling of being at one with yourself for those minutes, especially in New York when it's so crazy and busy and everything is going on all around you at a thousand miles per hour. And so that's really where I started my love of running and my first actual like road race in New York. I don't know if they still do it, but this is what they did back then. They had a midnight run, December 31st, you go to Central Park and at midnight, the run starts. So instead of being in Times Square with the ball dropping, I was in Central Park lined up to run four miles. And it was awesome. It was so <laughs> fun being out there because it just felt invigorating. It was freezing. I'm wearing just layers and I've got this, you know, thing on my head to keep my ears warm. But it was so invigorating running in that cold with so many other people celebrating the new year. And from there, I just kept on running. Yeah, you just had the bug and what a great place to start. Central yeah. Park running there. I mean, that that's like the Mecca in terms of, like you said, getting away and just having your own thoughts because it is the hustle and bustle. How did you then, if you didn't really play a whole lot of sports, how did you come about that, hey, I want to make a career in sports, though, as a sports journalist? My dad was hugely instrumental, huge sports fan, would watch any sport that was on TV at all times. It didn't matter what it was, what team it was. There was always sports on TV. And I grew up in Miami in the 1980s. So that meant the Hurricanes and the Dolphins were always on TV. Football, my dad loved football. And I, I don't know, I was just drawn to it. I, I loved watching and sitting on the couch with my dad. Uh, I, my earliest memory is the Miami-Boston College game in 1984 when Doug Flutie won uh, the game. And I just sat there and cried and cried and cried. <laughs> and I wouldn't come to dinner. And I was so sad and devastated that something like that had happened, not realizing that that was going to be in the pantheon of greatest college football plays ever. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just... I didn't like going out and doing shopping with my mom or running errands. I just liked watching football with my dad. And... He was really patient with me in explaining the game and helping me understand what was happening and all the rules and what the penalties were and what the quarterbacks were doing to the point where I just got really into it. And I loved uh, sitting on the couch with him on Saturdays and, and Sundays and, and watching football. And I loved to write. That was my favorite subject in school. And so one day I just asked my dad, do you think I could write about sports one day? And again, this was the 1980s. There weren't a lot of women in the industry 
there were a couple who worked at the Miami Herald, which was my hometown newspaper. Mm -hmm. There were a few on TV. I had no idea that this was a business in which it was really difficult for women to get into. I just thought, hey, I love these two things. I want to do it. And my dad said, of course, why not? You just follow your dreams. You do whatever you want to do. And he encouraged me every step of the way. And now that I look back on it, I'm so grateful for that because I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I didn't know the challenges that were going to be there for a woman in a male-dominated industry. And my dad probably didn't know either. He just thought he was encouraging his daughter to go follow her dreams. And here I am. Yeah, I was going to ask that just in terms of, obviously, he's given you the positive encouragement, but was he also sharing some of the landscape parameters that there's not a lot of women at all? Uh, but it sounds like it, he was just telling his daughter, follow your dreams, follow your passions, right? Absolutely. And my dad was not in the journalism field, uh, avid newspaper reader. We had a subscription to the Miami Herald, like I said, but um, he worked for the power company. So he had no idea what the dynamic was in terms of women getting into sports journalism specifically. And it really wasn't until I got into college at the University of Florida where I looked around the room and I was like, wait, hold on. Where, where are all the other women? It's just guys in here. And honestly, I was so intimidated by that when I walked into the student newspaper, the Independent Florida Alligator. When I walked in, of course, I knew I wanted to do sports, but there were only guys back in the sports department. And the person who greeted me at the door asked me what I wanted to do. And I was too scared to say I wanted to do sports. And so for that first semester, I was a news reporter and it was miserable and I hated it. <laughs> I had to go to city council meetings and student government meetings and write about all these controversial topics. And all I kept thinking was, what am I doing? What am I doing? Why don't I just speak up? So what that there's guys back there? I always had friends who were male and always got along great with them. Like just, just do it already. And I had to give myself a pep talk when it came time for the next semester. And they said, well, what, what news beat do you want? Well, whatever you want. And I'm like, actually, I want to write sports. <laughs> and they were a little upset about that. But, um, they introduced me to the sports editor, and I was the only female on our sports staff. But those guys uh, ended up being some of my closest friends, and I'm still in touch with essentially all of them today. What was the tipping point that you said, all right, I, I've, got to, I've got to say it. I've got to let them know. Well, I was sitting in my dorm room by myself. It probably was later in the semester, and I was just like, this is not how I imagined my freshman year. Uh, going. You know, I, I had all these hopes and dreams from the time I was in third grade. I knew I wanted to be a sports writer and now I'm not doing it because I was too scared to go in a room filled with guys. What's wrong with you, right? I had to just mentally get to a place where it was okay for me to start pushing boundaries and challenging whatever the assumptions were that I thought they were going to have of me. I'd always been around guys. I'd always talk sports with guys. So I don't know why I had this reaction that suddenly I didn't want to go back there and write sports. So it took several months for me to tell myself, you can do this. This is what you always wanted to do. And if you don't do it, you're not going to get what you want. And so, yeah, it was the summer of, of 1996 when I finally said, enough is enough, Andrea, just go back there and tell them that you want to do sports. And the news editor, uh, who I'm still friends with as well, um, her name was Kathy. She was like, oh, we always lose the good ones to sports. But um, yeah, I was grateful for that news experience, though, because I learned a lot that has been beneficial as a sports writer, because ultimately sports writing is news writing. And we also have to know how to do public record searches and go to the courthouse and find arrest reports and that sort of thing uh, as a sports writer, too, to do background checks. And all of the stuff that was a baseline for me as a news reporter has paid off in spades as a sports reporter, because even though you have these walls in newsrooms, essentially the jobs are the same. A journalist is a journalist, right? And ultimately, our job is to find information, whether you're asking somebody a sports question or a news or a politics question, right? The bottom line is, what's the news and how do we get it? 
And so I'm forever grateful to Kathy and the people that I worked with on our new staff because that helped me become a better sports writer ultimately. How was that then being at Florida at that time? I mean, you talk about growing up in the 80s with the hurricanes and their dominance, and now you're at Florida and, you know, what they're doing on the, at least on the you know football side, what was that experience like knowing that you're in the midst of, you know, covering that sport and the Gators at the time? Well, it took a while for me to understand and accept and realize I was at Florida because I grew up in Miami as a diehard Hurricane fan. And of course, as a diehard Hurricane fan, you don't like Florida and you certainly don't like Florida State. So going to the University of Florida, I had to change my mindset like this is my school. This is my alma mater. It's okay to like Florida, right? It's okay to wear orange and blue. It's fine. That first (laughs) freshman year was a little challenging to change my mindset, right? But I will say this, you know, my freshman year was 1995 and I had student season tickets. This was before I started working as a sports writer at, at the Alligator and it was football season, and my cousin, who was a senior at the time, was like, we, ha- we have to go to these games. I'll take you with me. Let's just go. So we had seats for the Florida-Tennessee game in 1995. This was Peyton Manning against Danny Werfel. And we had seats behind one of the end zones. And it just started monsooning during the game. And we are just, like, completely and totally drenched. But Florida is kicking you, the you-know-what of Tennessee <laughs> and Peyton Manning. And it just became this incredible celebration in the rain that was so amazing. I said to myself, yeah, this is what a real college football Saturday is like uh, at, at a football school, right? Miami didn't have an on-campus stadium. The vibe at the Orange Bowl was outstanding. Don't, don't get me wrong. I loved going to games in the Orange Bowl. But being in an on-campus stadium with... 80,000 people screaming and dancing in the rain was something I had never experienced before. And it really helped me accept where I was and love where I was. And so having the opportunity to cover Steve Spurrier and the Florida football team, but also several other sports, because when I started doing sports, I started at the bottom. You don't automatically start to write football, right? You <laughs> That's gotta, a fair point, yes. <laughs> you got to pay your dues. So I was able to actually watch the national championship game, both the, the 95 against Nebraska and 96 when they finally won it against Florida State. I was able to actually watch those, not in a press box, like removed from it. Uh, And then once I started to cover football and get to know Steve Spurrier and some of those other folks with the football program, gosh, I look back on those days and I think I took it for granted a little bit, right? Like you're a student and you're covering one of the greatest coaches of all time. And all you're doing is thinking, What's my next question going to be? How am I going to make it through the day? What am I going to write today, right? There's no greater appreciation for what's actually happening in front of you. But now that I'm older, there certainly is because I had some incredible opportunities with Coach Spurrier. He let me go out and and punt with the football team uh, one day for a column that I was writing. Uh, And I tracked him down one night in his office to get a quote for a story I was doing about a, a female kicker that he had offered a spot, a walk-on spot to. And so those chances, I think back on those now, and as somebody who has been in this business as long as I have, I don't know that I would have felt the courage to even ask to to do some of those things now at this age, right? But back then, you're a student, you're like, well, what's the worst that can happen, right? Let's just try it out. And he said yes to all my requests. And I still have a relationship with him to this day. Uh, and every time he sees me, he still asks how my punting is going. So uh, <laughs> I was going to ask you the same thing. How far did you punt it that day? Well, it's funny because so th- their punters that year it was 1998. Their punters were terrible. And as somebody who lives in South Carolina, I'm sure you know that Steve Spurrier has very little patience for his yes. special teams. Uh, and his punters and, and his kickers. So I was writing a column, really, talking to the other players on the team of how far do you think you could punt the ball? Certainly you could punt it better than who we have right now, right? And it was Javon Curse and players like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I could definitely punt it, right? So that was what the whole column was going to be. The other players essentially making fun of their their punter at the time. But a colleague of mine said, well, why don't you ask 
Steve Spurrier, if you can just punt. And I'm like, are you crazy? And he's like, no, no, just do it. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. He's like, just do it. Just do it. So again, I'm like, all right, well, you know, the worst he can say is no. So after initially being like, ah, I don't think I could do that. I went up and I asked and he says to me, all right, meet me out by the field. Three o'clock. <laughs> and at that point, I'm like, what have I just done? I've never punted before in my life. And now I'm going to go out there and embarrass myself in front of the special teams and Steve Spurrier. So I literally got a football and I went with one of my friends uh, to an empty field and we punted for hours just so that I, I would not totally look like an idiot when I went out there. Yeah, you practice. at least needed one punt I needed before something. you actually did it in front of Steve Spurrier, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So at this point, my foot has swollen because I've punted for hours. And I'm like, well, this is just going to be wonderful. So, of course, I get there early because you can't be late. And I'm standing outside the the fence or the, the gate to go out to the field. And he's like, all right, all right, we got to jog it out now. We got to jog it out. So I start jogging with Steve Spurrier. And all I can think was, what, what am I doing? What am I about to do? <laughs> the special teams players are already out there. And already I'm getting death looks. Like, what is this girl doing out here? And Spurrier just, he reveled in this because he wanted to make a point to his punters and kickers. That was his whole goal in all of this. I'm going to bring a girl out here and she's going to show you how it's really done. And he started coaching me up because, you know, he punted when he was at Florida uh, and he kicked. So he starts coaching me up about how I need to take the proper steps and what I need to do to kick the ball. So the first one was awful and totally horrendous. And I'm like... <laughs> Okay, <laughs> this is not going to go well, but fine, I'll just go with it. The second one, the he had the equipment manager ready to, to catch the punts. But he says to him, I don't want you touching the ball until it stops rolling. We're going to count the roll. So <laughs> it didn't matter how like far it went. He wanted to maximize the yardage again so that he could embarrass the punters. Because, you know, that's part of his shtick. That's just that's part right. of who he is. So after about half an hour, I think the longest one went 30 yards with the roll, of course. Uh, and now the rest of the team is coming out. Doug Johnson was a quarterback at the time. And I'm like, I've really got to go like this. I, I don't need to be in front of the whole team. So we ended it. And my biggest regret, honestly, is we did not have a photographer out there. I just did I know. We, I need video also. I know. Andrea, I know. Come on. And the thing is, you know, in the 90s, nobody <laughs> had the phones on, on their uh, cameras on their phones. Nobody had the video on the phones and you know there was exactly I did not tell our photography staff and they were so mad at me that I didn't tell them that I was going out there it was a total you know college student I'm just going to do this not not thinking big picture about how much would I love in my 40s to have a photo of me you know punting with with Steve Spur and the football team so that that's my biggest regret on that but I wrote a column special teams players hated me Spurrier loved it the coaching staff loved it um, and it's something that I will cherish and remember uh, for the rest of my life. Of course. Well, the one thing that I do know that there is video of, that's you calling some plays at Florida <laughs> State as an offensive coordinator, basically, at least for a short time period. What was more challenging, the punting or actually calling plays for Mike Norvell and Florida State? Well, I, I'm not sure how Steve Spurrier would have liked it that I actually went up to Florida State uh, into enemy territory uh, to call some plays. And when Mike Norvell actually uh, called to ask if I'd be interested in doing it, I'm like, Mike, you know, I went to Florida, right? Have you approved this with other people in Tallahassee that you're going to let a gator on the sideline? to call plays and he started laughing he's like, ah, you know it's it's fine but honestly calling plays was way more challenging you know the punting was not a game situation it was more for fun uh i was really nervous about calling the plays because i wanted to win like i really wanted to win so that the setup was it was myself and andy staples who works uh, at the athletic now but andy and i actually worked at the alligator together at the same time and he was there when I when I punted with the football team. And on the other side were Gene Deckerhoff, the longtime voice of the Seminoles, and another uh, radio personality, Jeff Cameron. So I wanted to win. I'm fiercely competitive. 
And I didn't want to embarrass myself in front of the entire team as the girl who didn't know how to call a play, right? I mean, I'm very cognizant of being a female and a male-dominated sport and industry, so I'm always looking to prove myself all the time. It's a weird thing because by this time, uh, I probably don't have to because I've been in the business long enough. But at the same time, I just always have this nagging feeling in the back of my head that someone's going to make fun of me or laugh at me uh, if I ask the wrong question uh, or if I say the wrong thing. So I wanted to make sure that I was completely locked in uh, and called every single play perfectly. Uh, We essentially, they gave us a a play sheet that had 10 very basic plays that were not giving away anything from the Florida State playbook. Um, and yeah, as a uh, Clemson grad, I need some of those. <laughs> yeah, it, it, exactly. So it was very, you know, counters and draws and a drop back pass and just very basic stuff. But, you know, Andy and I wanted to air it out a little bit. You know, we went to Florida like, you know, this is not going to be a no, we're not going to be a ground and pound offense. We got to air it out. We got to go fast. We got to go tempo. We got to air it out. So, um, you know, it, it was the most challenging part, honestly was the first play was easy, right? Because you knew you want what you wanted to run. The next play was harder. The third play was even harder. And the fourth was the hardest because now it's going fast. And now you're trying to figure out what's going to work at this down and distance, but you're also trying to see how the defense is lined up so that you can make sure that you have the advantage on offense, right? And this is all happening in 20 seconds. So we had headsets on where we were connected up to the offensive coordinator who was in the booth, Kelly, Kenny Dillingham. And so he starts screaming, we need the play. We need the play after like 15 seconds. And <laughs> you're just like, oh, I'm looking at the, sheet, the looking pressure. at the defense. Oh my God, we have 10 yards to go. What do we do? <laughs> uh, and so that's where I really started to get very nervous and having a much greater appreciation for what, the coordinators have to do because it's more than just what play do we think is going to work here. You have to evaluate the situation, but also what the defense is about to do before you end up making the the play call. And it's funny because there was one play call I felt really good about. I actually went back and I watched the tape uh, and the, the quarterback did a check down on it. And so on on the TV, they're calling me, you know, screen happy because it was like three screen passes in the row. The second <laughs> play wasn't supposed to be a screen. It was supposed to be the wheel route to the tight end. But the quarterback checked down because he panicked and got nervous. So now I got a glimpse of what it's like for coaches who are going back and listening to the broadcast because the broadcasters don't know when the checkdowns are happening. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So I'm like, no, I'm not screen happy. That's not what was supposed to happen. (laughs) So anyway, it was so much fun, but it was so nerve wracking because it's really, it's a really hard job. And I told Kenny afterward, I don't know how you don't have like gray hair popping out all over the place because I would be totally stressed out and nervous every time I had to call a play. So it's not as easy as it looks like on TV. It's not. And and it's so funny that as the average fan, and I fall into that category as well at times, that you think that, oh, I could, why are they calling this play? Why are they doing this? You don't know all of the things that are going into a play that actually occurs. I mean, there's so many more factors that are involved and you got to experience it firsthand. So it'd be interesting to see, again, some of these average Joes to be able to experience some of these situations. And I think they would have a much better appreciation and maybe not be so negative uh, about these coaches that they're just trying to do the best job they can, you know, and it's not uh, that easy. Now, you mentioned being competitive and fiercely competitive. So when you say fiercely competitive, what what does that mean, though? And how early did you recognize that you were that competitive? Well, I always hated to lose. I mean, always. I would just get mad and frustrated anytime I lost it, anything. And that's not just sports. You know, that's in a board game with my sister or uh, anything (laughs) else uh, that I did. And in journalism, it carries over. If somebody has a story that I don't have, I am really upset and mad that I didn't have it first. And that's the competitive 
side in me because I want to break every story. I want to have every great feature that's out there. And when someone else has it, it, it's great that they got it. And I'm not upset at them. I'm upset at myself for not, you know, working harder, not trying to make another call to, to get the story. So I've, I've always been that way. Um, watching, you know, my favorite teams when I was a kid, I would get really upset, you know, when my teams lost and, um, there were multiple Miami uh, hurricane games where I would just pound the wall or, or get upset that they were losing <laughs> or have to leave the room or yeah. whatever the case may be. I remember, I think it was 1990, they were playing BYU and they were favored. They were coming off the national championship and they lost that game. And I was just so upset that, that they lost. But, um, you know, I, I think being competitive is actually a, a good quality to have because it makes you push harder for what you want. Yeah, do you, and, and do you push yourself more? Yes, absolutely. And it's probably, I view it as a positive, but it can be a negative when you just push and push and, and push to the point of exhaustion. So you have to know when to take a step back. But for me, getting to the place where I am right now in my career is because I've been so competitive and driven to um achieve my goals and to make sure that I'm doing everything that I have to do to be on the right path towards success. I mean, this has been my dream for 35 years and I get to live it out. And I love the fact that I get to live it out, but I've also worked hard to get to this point and push myself really hard um, and have sacrificed some things maybe. Um, so that I could have this job and I have no regrets about it because if you would have told me when I was a little girl that I would have a chance to work at ESPN for 10 plus years and there would also be more than writing involved, I probably would have said, where do I sign up? Uh, and now I'm here and um, it's really been uh, an incredible journey to get here. Do you really feel that you still sometimes struggle that you're still having to prove yourself and oh, that yeah. you're not necessarily, I shouldn't say fitting in, but again, it is a male-dominated industry. I mean, obviously sports just in itself, but what you're doing. But I think you've you've been doing it long enough, Andrea, that you've 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 proved that you're part of sports journalism. And I don't know if you have to prove anything else, but you still feel that way. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Um, it means a lot to me. But yeah, I just think that's the competitor in me. Uh, what drives me is that I can't just be complacent about where I am. I have to keep proving that I belong here. And I, I feel like I have to do that all the time, right? Because in our business, things could change uh, in an instant. And I've seen a lot of my friends lose their jobs and have to pivot and, and do something else. And so seeing that makes you feel as if, well, my time might not be very long either. So I need to continue to push and prove myself because I want to keep my job as long as I possibly can. And the only way that I can do that is to keep proving myself why I belong here, why I deserve to have this opportunity year after year. So I, I just, every time I meet a new coach or I, I meet an athlete, I am hyper aware of my first impression on them is going to be hugely important in determining what our future relationship is going to be. And I feel as if I have to be perfect in my questions and what I'm asking so that they realize and understand that I have the credibility to do what I'm doing. There are a lot of coaches that have known me for a really long time that I don't have to do that with, right? But when you're talking about a new coach or a new athlete that you're meeting, I'm always on guard, even though I've been doing this for a long time, because those relationships are hugely important for our ability to do our jobs. And if I don't have credibility or respect from them, then I can't do my job. So I view it as constantly trying to work on myself as a reporter and also trying to validate where I am, even though on the outside, that sounds weird. Why do you feel like you have to validate yourself? Because you've been doing this for so long. Exactly. But it's just a little piece inside of me that's always been there. And I don't know if it'll ever go away, no matter 
how many people I meet or how many stories that I write. And I don't know if that's because um, that's how I've derived a lot of where I've been or if it's just because I continue to understand and realize that there are not many of us women in this business. There are more, but it's not equal. I don't think it'll ever be equal, but I feel like I have to hold a, a flag and a torch for all the other women who come after me or who want to ask me questions or view me as somebody who's had success in their career and never slip up and never um, do something that would invalidate who I am and what I have accomplished. And how important is it for you then to also look at as you're continuing to evolve into other things like doing TV, uh, not just writing? Uh, how important is that for you uh, as you're continuing your career? It's hugely important because it helps me stay relevant. There's no such thing as only being a writer anymore. That job in sports writing does not exist. You can't call yourself a sports writer. You have to call yourself a multimedia sports journalist right now because everybody that's coming up has to be able to do something else beyond writing, whether that's radio or podcasting as we're doing right now or video or television. And it doesn't necessarily have to be for ESPN or the ACC network. I mean, you could just be doing a 60-second video to go with a story that you've written, which we have done countless times on ESPN.com. Yeah, or and even somebody, some voiceover. You do a lot of voiceover, voiceover now. I know. Right? The tracking, that that's my biggest challenge right now is the tracking because I don't, I was never trained for TV and I was never trained to do tracking. So all of the last 10 years at ESPN has been learning on the job. I already knew how to write, but all the other stuff that I do now at ESPN has been trial and error. And when I first started there, my videos were awful. I mean, to the point where <laughs> I got emails telling me that I was bad at it. I'm like, I know, we're a TV company. Isn't someone there who can help me? That's right. Uh, right? So th yes, they eventually helped me and... We got all sorts of folks coming in to talk to our dot-com staff about what makes a good video or what makes a good TV hit or what makes a good stand-up. Uh, and so I feel like I've gotten better and I've progressed of the year, as the years have gone on to the point now where I'm a contributor at the ACC Network and they've asked me to do some, some tracking and some voiceovers. And that part is hard because I never learned how to do any of that. So it takes me about an hour to do a 30-second clip because uh, I want it to sound, I don't want it to sound like this. <laughs> exactly. I can imagine you're a perfectionist as well. Uh, I am. how highly competitive you are. <laughs> yes, exactly. So when you do the tracking, as you probably are well acquainted, oh, you're I know. reading from a script, right? And it yes. can sound very boring. Uh, and so, you know, Trying to talk like this where you're having a conversation, it's hard when you're locked is. in a room by yourself trying to get it right. That's right. There's some people that it just comes natural and you can tell. I mean, for, for yes. me, I'm the same way. It would take me a good 30 minutes to record a 30 second spot uh, just because like, oh, I didn't like that one. And if I go back and listen to them, they all sound almost identical. Yes, <laughs> you know, there's really it, no there's really no difference. Exactly. <laughs> it, it's so funny because I just did one on um, NC State for yes. uh, the campus tours. Yes. Okay, thank you. When I listened to it, when I sent it in, I'm like, okay, that's pretty good. But when I saw it, uh, the final product with the video in it, I'm like, God, this sounds terrible. I sound <laughs> like I'm just reading off a piece of paper. I wanted it to sound, you know, uh, authoritative. And I think it sounded a little too authoritative to the point where my 12-year-old said to me, it just sounded kind of boring. It just doesn't sound like you're having any fun. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I totally failed. Now you're so. going to stress about that. <laughs> you know, I need the approval of my 12-year-old uh, to feel good That's about myself. That's important at times, though. Believe me, I understand that as well. Because uh, I, I still don't know if I've gotten any approval from my three kids at all at times. But uh, has there been a time where, like, you missed a deadline just because you had writer's block. You just couldn't 
get the story out uh, or, you know, some challenge of writing a story? Has that happened or is that common? So before I worked at ESPN, I worked at the Associated Press in New York. And the Associated Press is the wire service. And you have to write fast on deadline. And I came to the AP from a job in South Florida uh, covering the Miami Hurricanes uh, for a newspaper. So it was a completely different job because I had to send my story in as soon as the game ended every single time. Didn't matter what time of day the game was happening or whatever event you were covering at the gun or at the buzzer, the story had to be filed. So I have been blessed to never miss a deadline because of my training at the AP. Because if you miss a deadline at the AP, I mean, you can't work at the AP. That's just the bottom line. I mean, you've got to be able to file it quickly. And they give you about one to three minute grace period, right? Especially if the game changed at the last second, you had a few minutes. Uh, but for the most part, it had to be in because the wire had to get it out. Uh, within about 10 minutes of a game ending because newspapers are relying on that copy to be able to put either on their website or in the newspaper. So I think part of the uh, competitiveness that I have suited me well at the AP because you get this adrenaline with five minutes left in the game where you know, I got to get it in. I got to get it in. My deadline's coming up. And it's that pressure as bizarre as it sounds, I thrive much better with my writing when my deadline is fast approaching as opposed to having several weeks. It's just much harder. And I, I feel like there are a lot of writers who are like this when you're staring at the screen and you know you've got about um, three days to file. It's like, huh, ah, I can just get up right now and get a snack. <laughs> oh, let me watch this video. Oh, wow, exactly. this tweet. I'm going to watch this video on this tweet right now. I got to go pick my kids up from school. Oh, gosh, would you look at that? It's already five o'clock. Uh, I got to make dinner. Uh, so, yes, there's all, all these built-in excuses when you're working from home, and that deadline is super far out. Uh, but when that deadline is fast approaching, boy, there's just a switch um, that goes off, and it's like smoke coming off the keyboard. You're just writing and writing, and, and that's when I do my best work. Yeah, and you have that adrenaline rush when you're done? Oh, absolutely. It's like watching the end of a close game. You're already, no matter, you know, as a journalist, it doesn't matter who ends up winning or losing, right? You just have to write the story regardless, and you want a great game to be able to write about. So your adrenaline is already pumping because it's a close game. You have no idea how it's going to happen, but you also know, I got to get this story in right now if, if we're talking about game deadlines and your heart is racing while you're watching the game and knowing you got a deadline to meet. And um, it's an exhilarating feeling because that's uh, right. I got into sports because I love sports and I love the the games and the competitiveness and 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 especially the close games that come down to the wire, you don't know what's going to happen. And then you combine that with the stress and adrenaline of having to file on deadline. Um, it's not for the faint of heart, that's for sure, because you've got to make sure that you're taking deep breaths and you're not panicking and know that as soon as the game ends, you got this and you're going to file it and it's going to be great. I can. I mean, you've got your own game clock, basically. Yes. That's that's running, right? <laughs> you know, from that respect. Absolutely. Do you still have your very first column or article that you wrote after you graduated Florida at your very first job? Do you still have that? Well, I do have. When I worked in high school, I was an intern for the community section at the Miami Herald called Neighbors. So I do have some of those clips. My parents had them laminated. They were so proud. So I do have some of those, but I, I'm not sure that I have the very first thing that I wrote at the South Florida Sun Sentinel. That was my first job out of college. But uh, my dad saved, and he just sent it to me a few months ago, an ad that we ran in the newspaper when I became the Miami Hurricanes beat writer. And it's a picture of me, and it says something like, Andrea's in the eye of the hurricane for our, you know, Miami coverage, something to that effect. And it's me with my arms crossed and my poofy <laughs> hair, um, just telling everyone to read my coverage in the Sun Sentinel. So I definitely have that. Um, 
and it's totally embarrassing but at the same time um kind of cool that uh that was uh that was um one of my first jobs out of college and it came full circle for me because that was my favorite team growing up incredible as we're wrapping up here, Andrea, it, you know, one of the things that you know I also like to lean on is just words of wisdom, phrases, mottos, quotes, or just life advice. Has there been any of those that have meant a lot to you in your life? That's a really tough question because there are so many words of wisdom imparted throughout the course of your life that stay with you. And for me, I have two daughters and I'm trying to instill a lot of what my parents gave to me. And I feel like my dad really pushing me to follow my heart and what I wanted to do was hugely influential in where I am right now. And I know that kind of sounds like a cliche, but I try to tell my daughters that no matter what you want to do in life, do it. Go do it. Don't let anybody stop you or tell you no or you're not good enough. That's not acceptable to me. And those are words that my parents always said to me, maybe even not verbally, but in their actions and their encouragements. And um, I'm forever grateful for that foundation. And, you know, it's funny. I didn't want to go to Florida. Florida was my last choice. But that was the only place that we could really afford to go to. So my parents said, we don't want you to go into any financial debt. Um, we, we feel like you should go to Florida. And I went there begrudgingly, but it turned out to be the greatest choice that I could have made for myself because it allowed me to get on the path that I am right now. And um, that was not my dream, <laughs> but their encouragement once I got there to follow what I wanted to do really helped me out. And by the end of my time there, I realized I was just being stubborn. And my education at Florida and my experiences covering all those teams at Florida laid the foundation for where I am right now. And so I just would love to tell people that it's really hard, especially now with social media, to tune out the negativity and the doubters and the critics and the people who want to tear you down. It's hard for me sometimes too. But the important thing is to think about who you are, what you are, what you stand for, and go get what you want, no matter what other people might think. And that advice has served me well, and um, hopefully it'll serve my kids well. And have you thought about how much not only the words of encouragement that, you know, obviously that you got, and then now you're passing that on to your daughters, but even just the actions, they're seeing you live that out and how impactful that's going to be on them because they're seeing your actions. I think about it all the time. And I try to tell them really detailed information about my job so that they understand it's not snapping your fingers and, and getting a job, that it also requires hard work to be able to get there, that there are incremental goals along the way that you need to meet or set for yourself to reach the bigger goal or the bigger picture. And now that they're older, um, I share with them what my stories are about and why I'm writing certain stories and what I have to do to get those stories done. I had a long conversation with my 10-year-old about Bobby Bowden when he passed away. And my experiences covering him 15 years ago when I got to the Orlando Sentinel and what he meant to me, to so many people in the sport and why I cover the sport is because of people like Bobby Bowden who got me to love college football. And so helping them understand and realize that anything is possible, uh, it requires some hard work and conviction and belief in yourself and for them to see me live that and do it every day, I'm cognizant of it. I think about it all the time. And I really hope that I'm setting a good example for them and for any other young lady uh, who's coming up to see that it's possible. And strength is power. And I know a lot of times in our society, 
maybe that's frowned upon for girls uh, to speak up and to be strong. And I don't ever want my girls to, to feel that either. And because I have a voice and I'm using it, uh, I hope they can see that as well. Yeah. Now, did they get your competitiveness? Oh, my 10-year-old, absolutely. Uh, it's hard <laughs> to play games with her because she is so competitive. She likes to cheat. Uh, so uh, my 10-year-old is basically a little carbon copy of me. So that's been interesting to deal with because I see some of the stuff that she does. And then my husband just stares at me and I'm like, what? He's like, you know where she gets that from, right? <laughs> like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, darting uh, my eyes side to yeah, side. Yeah, deny, deny, uh, deny. <laughs> <laughs> my, my oldest is like her dad. And, you know, there are times I wish that I had her very cool, calm demeanor. Um, you know, so watching that dynamic at play and how different they are with the same parents uh, has been... Uh, Really fun to watch. But uh, yeah, trying to coach up my 10-year-old when I'm having to realize, oh, shoot, maybe I should coach myself up better. That's right. Trying yes. to coach her up. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it has, has been quite a learning experience. <laughs> I love that's That's just the, the pathway of being a parent as well. You start realizing that, oh, my goodness, that reminds me a lot of myself yeah. you know, at one point. Andrea, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Obviously, you've taken the time. And one last question, though. Could you go to Mike Norvell now and say, hey, we need to flip things. You need to write an article and have this deadline, <laughs> right? <laughs> and see how he responds. <laughs> oh, man, I would gladly challenge him to a... Uh, a write-off on deadline. I feel like I would totally win that one. Uh, I think so, too. Yes, no doubt about it. Awesome. Andrea, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Actions are oftentimes more powerful than words, and it's obvious that Andrea's daughters are able to see their mom in action, living out her dream through hard work and determination. But more importantly, by setting goals and even understanding the power of those incremental goals to reach your ultimate destination. Now that finishes episode 156. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Takes Sports. Thanks for listening.